You're listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego, filling in here in the Freedom Hut. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, Thanks for having me. In this hour, we're going to talk about uh, the truth behind hate crimes and the moral panic that our elites, that our betters, our superiors are, well, unfortunately, successfully creating in our country. But we got to fight back against it. And the only way to do that, well, the, the first thing we need to do is to know the truth and get the true perspective. Because once you have perspective, then you can bring peace, not only to yourself, but to those around you. So that's what we're going to do in this hour. First, ExpressVPN. We, we all are aware with the problems with censorship and social media and, and Twitter and Facebook and just f- tracking you and following your every move. So how do we get around that? ExpressVPN. Uh, you can give them a call and you can ask all the questions about the, the technology behind all of it. Uh, but all I care about is it's super easy to set up and one tap of a button on your phone or computer and you're protected. Right? And they encrypt 100% of your data to protect you from hackers and internet bad guys as well. So you can say no to censorship. Take back your online privacy at expressvpn.com slash buck. And if you click that link, then you get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. Expressvpn.com slash buck and protect your data today. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. It's an honor to be here. Uh, I want to talk about moral panics. That's going to be the theme of the, uh, the show today. Uh, we'll start off with this. This is Barack Obama. He said this the other day. This is in, relate, relation, uh, in reaction to the, the mass shootings from the last couple of weeks. He said, we should be able, Barack Obama, we should be able to live our lives without wondering if the next trip outside our home could be our last. We should but in America, we can't. <laughs> like, oh, jeez. Oh, like that is, that's hysterical. That, that, that reminds me of uh, LeBron James. Remember LeBron James a while back? He said he's scared to leave his house. He said, he said you are literally being hunted. This is what he said. He said you're being hunted every time you step foot outside your home. That is hysterical. That is there's zero relation to reality at all. Just, so let's do a couple of numbers. We're going to throw some numbers here on the radio. Numbers are kind of hard on the radio, so but we'll do the best we can here. Just number of black people. This is 2016. Number of black people killed in car crashes, 6,700. Number of black people killed by other black people, 2,570. Number of black people killed by white people, 243. Number of black people killed by cops, because that's what LeBron James was talking about, 18. And number of black people in 2016 struck by lightning, 96. You have a far greater likelihood of being struck by lightning if you're black in America than you do being killed by a police officer. Yet LeBron James says you're being hunted. You're literally being hunted when you step foot out your home. Barack Obama saying it's, it's not safe to go outside. That is just whipping people up. It's causing chaos and anxiety and division. So let's give some truth. Let's give some truth. Your chance of being murdered in America, 
one in 20,000. Stay out of the drug trade, and your chances are even better of not getting murdered. And most murders occur with people between people who know each other, and most murders actually occur in the home, not when you step foot out of them. Mass shootings are even more rare. And that's the context of what Barack Obama was talking about, the mass shootings. You have as close to a 0% chance of dying in a mass murder as possible. About 50 people a year are killed in mass shootings. So you have a 1 in 6.6 million chance of being killed in a mass shooting in a given year. And Barack Obama, the former president, is telling people that you should be scared to go outside. It could be your last could be your last time you ever go outside and say goodbye to your family. No, that's absurd. That's absolute nonsense. Now, the reason he's saying that was a couple of reasons. In the third hour, we're going to talk about moral panics and, and the exact format of a moral panic. And the very quick of it is an event happens. The media and politicians whip people up into a frenzy. Third step is people get super anxious and freak out, panic. And then the fourth is the government swoops in to save the day. <laughs> that's, that's always the final step, even though usually they're the ones who cause the problem in the first place, almost always. So the reason Barack Obama is telling you this, that you should be scared to go outside, is to create the illusion that America is terrible. America is evil. America is rotten to its core. America is an awful place. You should be scared to go outside that causes people to be in a panic and then the government can swoop in and say hey it's okay you're scared you're scared you shouldn't be scared what a shame that you're scared you know what i can fix it let's just hand over all the guns go ahead just just give just hand over all the guns to me or give me the authority to take guns from people and then we'll solve this problem then you don't have to be scared anymore and all this panic can just go away. That's how that works. You see it? Now, in a little bit of Barack Obama's defense, he did live in Chicago, where last weekend 15 people were shot and three people were killed. But we don't talk about that. Because you can't blame white supremacy for that, and you can't blame Trump. Although, I'm sure there's some people who can find some convoluted way to do just that. I got some numbers here on interracial crimes. So we just keep this party going? Um, so it's, uh, numbers are about the same every, every year. Uh, I mean, I, I have the exact numbers here from the FBI. I love that. I'm going to share this right here. And I know there's people I'm going to send an email and they're like, who's this Slater guy coming in from San Diego, filling it for buck sex and thinks he can blah, 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 or whatever. I'm going to get them. It's fine. These are the FBI statistics. I don't know what to tell you if you're upset about it. So I'll be going to round the numbers because they're about the same every year. I mean, it's 576 is the actual number, but about 550 black people kill a white person every year. So 550 black people kill 550 white people. And it's uh, 250 white people kill 250 black people every year. So it's much more likely that a black person kills a white person than a white person kills a black person. Now, I know that upsets people. But the, I share this because the perception is the exact opposite. I mean, look at LeBron James. LeBron James and Barack Obama. I don't like what's crazy. This is so wild. The former president and LeBron James talk about how they're going to get killed by white people. You can't even go outside. And I come on the radio and I say, well, actually, here's the numbers. And it's, you're way more likely. It's, it is more likely that a black person kills a white person than what you're saying is, oh, racist. 
say, oh, I'm, I, listen, I didn't even bring it up. Like, crime's awful. Like, no one should kill anyone. I don't know what we're... Right? But I'm just trying to bring some perspective and truth and therefore peace to the situation. That this is a crime problem, not a race problem. But perception matters because when your perception's all messed up, you're not even, you're not even in your right mind. One of my favorite questions that people do surveys on is, is perspective related questions. So this one just came out a couple weeks ago. They asked people, how many unarmed black men are killed by police officers every year? So I'll ask you, how many unarmed black men are killed by police officers every year? What do you think? What, how many, just give it a ballpark number. How many unarmed black men are killed by police officers every year? Take a stab at it. Take a shot at it. 41% of liberals and they broke it down based off of your political leanings. 41% of liberals believe it's over a thousand. Over a thousand unarmed black men are killed by police every year. It's like three a day. The truth, about 13 or so, 13. 2018, there was 13. That's very different than, than over a thousand. But do you see what politician and media-led moral panics can do? It can cause you to have wildly wrong perceptions and then people freak out and then we end up making really bad policy if nothing else but also bad cultural movements people scared to go outside and there's no reason for it i got one just from example from from yesterday example from yesterday uh richard blumenthal senator from connecticut he said that eight children every day are killed from guns that are stored unsafely he was blaming republicans for the mass shootings he was blaming ted cruz specifically for ducking responsibility. He's complicit. He said Ted Cruz is complicit in all these shootings. And he said eight children a day are lost uh, every day from guns that are stored unsafely. And I heard that and I thought, what in the world are you talking about? Like that, there's no way that's true. So I did some research on where he got that. He got that from the Brady um, campaign. It's, I think it's, it's probably the biggest anti-gun group in the country. And I found the website where they talk about this. Um, they call it Family Fire. And uh, it's not true. It's not true. It's 70 kids a year are killed by accidental discharge, which is not eight a day. It's more like one every five days. That's a huge difference. Now, 70 is too many. Everyone should do a better job of storing their guns properly. And teaching kids not to touch guns, not to play with guns, use protect, act as if every gun's loaded. We, like, we know the rules, and, and people need to do a better job with the, of being a gun owner no doubt about that but one kid shot uh, killed every five days from accidental discharge is very different than eight a day and would therefore create very different reactions but that's richard blumenthal's point right he wants people to be in a panic and freak out so that they can come to the rescue and save the day by taking guns away from people so what's the problem with these lies uh just yesterday i read uh first corinthians 14 4 and uh, talked about how God is not a God of confusion, but he's a God of peace. In 1 Corinthians 14, 40, it says, uh, but all things should be done decently and in order. In order. And if you do a study on the word order throughout the Bible, uh, God is, is order. God is order. He is clarity. God is peace. And when you spout off wildly inaccurate numbers and create these moral panics that have no relationship to reality whatsoever, you're, you're, not, you're not acting decently 
and you're not creating order. You're creating confusion, panic, and division. Watch out for people who are doing that. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Mike Slater, spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Super grateful you're here. Oh, please don't turn the... I know, listen, when I tune into my favorite show and my guy's not there, I'm tempted to tune the radio off as well. Uh, but give this segment a, a chance. I think you'll like it. Uh, I want to talk about anti-Asian hate crimes. There, there is no anti-Asian hate crime epidemic. Does not exist. Not a thing. But after the shooting a couple weeks ago in Georgia, that instantly became the narrative from the media. I know Buck talks a lot about that. Uh, so you, we'll get some truth here. Does, as if it matters. Does, does, truth, does it matter? Does truth even matter in our post-truth world? Again, the four stages of a moral panic. You'd think we'd know better by now. You'd think the American people would be wised up when we see these moral panics coming after COVID and after George Floyd, and we need to knock it off with these already. There's four stages to a moral panic. First, something happens. Something bad happens. Second, the media inflames it and makes villains and victims. Third, people get anxious and panic. And then fourth, the government comes in and fixes it. So in Georgia, we have this sex addict psycho who was kicked out of his house for being a sex addict. This whole thing killed eight people, six of them Asian in that massage parlor. For some reason, we have this like drive to figure out the inner thoughts of a psychotic mass murderer. Like, I, I don't know why we do that. Can you even begin to fathom how depraved you have to be to go randomly kill a bunch of people? Like, I can't. But if you want to look into the psyche and find a motive, police asked him if it had anything to do with race. And he said, no. Like, well, what are we doing? If it, if it did, if he, if he was like, I hate Asians, I'm going to go kill a bunch of Asians. And then he did. And police said, hey, why'd you do it? You think he'd say, oh, because I hate Asians. But he didn't say, he said, no, I had nothing to do with race. But that didn't stop the media. Here's a key with people who are trying to inflame moral panics. Here's how you know, or one way. When they just tell you an, a percent increase in something without giving you the raw number. So the LA Times wrote an article and they said, there's a historic rise of hate crimes. 33% increase in hate crimes against Asians in Seattle last year. 33%. People are like, oh, wow, 33%. That's terrible. What they don't tell you is that that is an increase of from 9 to 12, <laughs> which, which isn't, right? I, I feel like if they put that in there, that would negate the entire hysterics of the article, whatever a hate crime even is, right? They're defined differently, and right, it's a silly thing even to have. Crime's a crime. So if something happens, the media fits it into a narrative. In this case, you know, white supremacy, it always is. Third, the panic. LA Times headline, pepper spray, Instagram, and buddy systems. How Asian Americans are dealing with attacks. And it talks about how people are buying uh, uh, pepper spray in bulk. <laughs> They're buying in bulk. What do you do with bulk pepper spray? Could you imagine buying like, like, like a fire extinguisher full of pepper spray? Like, what are you going to do with that? You just walk around, preemptively shoot it in front of you wherever you go? So it just talks about this article in the LA Times about all these, these people who have, they're panicking. 31-year-old guy, Vietnamese guy, is talking about how he's got to make sure his battery's always charged so he can video the inevitable hate crime that's coming his way. And one woman said that you're carrying this feeling of inevitability. She says, I can barely get out of bed. 
you can't live your life on guard like this all the time. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And I can't leave my house alone. It's like, wow, that is entirely irrational. You've maybe heard the line that there's been a 149% increase in hate crimes across the country. 149% increase. Again, without giving you the raw numbers. That's from 49 to 112. 112? That's what we're talking about here? Again, 112 too many. But is that worth buying pepper spray in bulk and living constantly on guard to the point where you can't get out of your bed? 112? There's 19 million Asians in this country. 19 million there's 112 hate crimes. That's a moral panic. But then the government swoops in, saves the day. At least they say they're going to save the day. They always end up making things worse. By the way, isn't it interesting Kamala Harris is now all of a sudden our first Asian vice president? Like I've never heard that ever until last week. Her mom's from India, so she gets it. She can fix it. I mean, she understands what it's like to be an Asian American or something. So the government's going to fix it. Um, but the government actually caused all this. What do I mean? How did the government cause these bad things to happen? Where are these hate crimes taking place? LA Times, I might be dead right now. Asian man describes brutal attack on San Francisco Street. These crimes are taking place in San Francisco and LA and New York. Not exactly uh, Trump bastions, <laughs> Trump strongholds. So what's happened in San Francisco and LA? California, we have something called Prop 47, maybe passed uh, six, eight years ago, something like that. It lowers felonies, many felonies, down to misdemeanors. So these people used to be getting arrested. They're not getting arrested anymore. So they keep it on the streets. There was an attack in a laundromat. Three fine gentlemen uh, attacked this Asian guy sitting inside a laundromat, just came in, cold-cocked him from behind, and took his money. Those guys were connected. They were caught and connected to eight car burglaries in San Francisco. Shockingly, if you keep criminals on the street, you get more crime. So you have Prop 47, we have uh, COVID. We've, in California, we've emptied out our prisons and jails, or I should say our jails. So we just let these criminals out on the street because heaven forbid they get COVID in jail. San Francisco just last year elected a straight up Marxist as their DA. And I'm not like, that's not an insult. I'm not like he's self-proclaimed. Hi, I'm Cheza Boudin. I'm a Marxist. I used to work for Hugo Chavez in Venezuela. Vote for me and I won't prosecute crime. Like that's, that was his whole thing. LA Times wrote a story about two Asians who were randomly knocked over on the sidewalk for no reason. The attacker is named Jorge Devis Milton. Black guy goes by Yahya Muslim, who has two prior felony assault convictions. You think that guy was motivated by Donald Trump calling it the China virus? One attack in San Francisco made news because this guy attacked a 91-year-old lady and she beat him up. It was a crazy homeless guy. Is that Trump's fault? Story in Oakland, a racist tirade against an Asian gas station owner. I got the video of it. The guy is a Muslim guy. He has these Arabic bumper stickers on the back of his car. He wanted to pay for his gas in quarters and got mad when the owner wouldn't let him. Is that Trump's fault? We got to be very careful of these moral panics because there are people who are making a lot of money and getting a lot of power by sweeping you and me, trying to sweep you and me up in them. And no longer. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Spread the word. What's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. Uh, truth, and you know, Buck talks about this all the time. Truth doesn't matter, <laughs> unfortunately. Of course it does, but in our society today, so many people just, just doesn't. Duke University. Someone posted on a campus bulletin board, George Floyd's toxicology report. Now, listen... <laughs> We could talk about if that's the most effective way to get a message across. 
but Duke has issued now an investigation into it. This is the dean of students. We are completely aligned with the idea that a person who causes harm to others in this community and elsewhere should be held accountable. Uh, causes harm to others. What's the, what's the harm that was caused? We don't have a picture of it, but the student newspaper said, uh, each on this the document that was posted on the bulletin board, each compound listed on the toxicology report was underlined with a pink pen. And the person wrote notes across the top of the page insinuating that Floyd was responsible for his own death. Therefore, we need an investigation. Who dare post the official uh, toxicology report? Maybe I need a, a quick sidebar here. Uh, the jury selection is, is going on right now for George Floyd. The trial starts in just a few days here, opening statements, I think on the 31st. And it's going to be a horrible time for this country. It's all televised. And it's very likely, very likely. I mean, obviously, there's a very biased jury. It's all about jury selection. Um, I mean, everyone knows about the, the case. So it's, I, don't know, I don't know how they're going to get an unbiased jury in, um, in downtown Minneapolis. But if you look at the evidence and only the evidence, then it is very likely that Derek Chauvin would be found uh, not guilty and acquitted and be let free. And if that happens, then get ready for every city in this country to be burned to the ground. It is going to be a very bad time for this country when this trial is over. Because most people, and even the trial itself, during the trial, most people don't know anything. <laughs> they just saw the video and that's it. Most people don't know anything about what's going to be revealed through this trial, including the toxicology report, that he had three times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. I think whoever posted the toxicology report, the point was, his point was, that this information's not being shared. That people don't know this truth. People don't know the facts. People don't know the truth. And you should know it. You should know Wherever you end up stay, uh, standing on the issue, right? Wherever you end up, fine. But you should know that the metal, medical examiner said that if they found George Floyd just dead somewhere, they'd assume that it was a drug overdose because he had three times the lethal amount of fentanyl in his system. His lungs were two to three times the weight of normal lungs because they were full of fluid because of all the drugs you should know that the medical examiner, and you will know, the country will know when this comes out in the trial, that the medical examiner found that there was no sign of any injury to his neck or no sign of restrictions to his airway. The medical, don't yell at me, the medical examiner concluded that there was no pressure assigned to his neck that caused him to not be able to breathe. So those are the facts that that's what the medical examiner re report says. You can decide what to do with it, but people should have that information, right? Apparently, if you post that information at Duke, you're harming people and there needs to be an investigation. Heaven forbid what happens when they find the person who posted it, maybe kick them out of school. Here's someone at Duke. Um, uh, this person was met with distasteful remarks that seemed to invalidate my feelings and experiences. 
right? So it's all about, I need to, you need to validate my feelings. You need to validate my experience. Okay, but here's the, here is the toxicology report. Here, here is the medical, no, no, no. Those aren't my feelings. That's not my experience. Facts not allowed. I got video here and we can't play it because the audio is not good, but um, there's a high school teacher in Ohio at a Catholic school. She was fired. She's the theology teacher, one of the theology teachers. And one of the students on their Zoom class had uh, a screenshot of, like their picture was of LeBron James wearing an I Can't Breathe shirt in reference to George Floyd, who, by the way, said I can't breathe seven times before he was ever on the ground. And that's because of what's called pulmonary edema, which is excess fluid in the lungs. That's why his lungs weighed so much. That's caused by a drug overdose before he was ever even on the ground. But again, that'll come out during the trial. Um, Again, we don't have the video here, but she, we do have the video, but you can't hear it. She says, the teacher does, um, regarding the I can't breathe, she says that's just not true. And it perpetuates a myth against police. I'm not sure LeBron James is in the position to be disrespectful to police officers, primarily because he probably doesn't go anywhere without a bodyguard. And a student came back and said, did you just say that it's disputed that George Floyd couldn't breathe? And she says, yes, it's disputed. And the student says, by who? Just aghast, by who? She says, the tape. And the the student is freaking out. And the student says, did the medical examiner, never mind, I'm sorry. I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. And then the teacher was fired because of it. But the student didn't finish the thought. That's what's interesting about this story. That student did not finish that thought. Right? She said, did the medical examiner, and she didn't finish the thought because she probably never read the medical report. She wanted to say something like, uh, well, well, didn't the medical examiner say that he died from being strangled? She wanted to say something like that, but the medical examiner did not say that. In fact, the opposite. He said there was no sign of injury to his neck. So she couldn't back it up with anything. So she decided not to say anything, which is noble. Teacher still got fired for it. And that's just the first of many of these to come, certainly when the trial starts. And listen, when the trial starts next week, all this is going to come out. Um, It's going to be a wonderful lesson in human nature as to what people choose to hear and choose to reject. This student didn't want to hear anything. Too emotional. Don't want to hear facts. You're not validating my feelings. That's the most important thing. Feelings over facts. You got to validate my feelings over facts. Even the idea that that's really been spread a lot these last couple of days is that all mass shooters are white men, right? Because that was the big thing. Like, oh, another white guy killed. This was in uh, Colorado. Oh, another white guy. Another white guy. Oh, I know he's white because the police didn't kill him. If it, if it was a black guy, they would have killed him. And it turns out he wasn't white. His name was Ahmad Asira, some Syrian immigrant. Right? So quickly, the conversation pivoted to gun control as opposed to white supremacy. And here we are, Biden wanting to take away your guns again. But again, it would push this whole narrative that all mass shooters are white men. And that's not true. Uh, from 1982 to 2021, there were 121 mass shooters. 1982 to 2020, 2021. 40 years. There's 121 mass shooters. 66 were white. So about half. White people are 75% of the country. So 
I mean, we'll call it about right. I mean, it's, it's actually a lower proportion than, right? But sure, we'll call it half. So there are, it's not all white. All shooters are white men. All mass shooters are white men. That's not true at all. But again, why are we so obsessed with race? Why can't we get down and talk about the things that are, are really at the root of this? My, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes, Henry David Thoreau, he said, there's thousands hacking at the branches of evil for every one that strikes the root. Let me play this sound clip right here. This is uh, on my, my local show the other day. We talked to um, Wilfred Riley. He's a professor at Kentucky State. He's great. I think he's the next generation's Thomas Sowell. He's wonderful. Uh, I have two clips I want to play from him. The first, I asked him about those uh, Richard Blumenthal numbers that I shared a second ago where he said eight kids every day are killed by uh, accidental discharges. And the, it's not eight a day. It's one every five days, which is very, very different. So I asked him about that. I said, how, like, these, these wildly outrageous numbers that the left throws, throws out, they're not true. What, what do we do with that? Here's what he said. One of the things that's so annoying about the quote-unquote culture war is the use of this idiotic, apocalyptic language and the numbers that go with it. So if you want to discuss racism, you could say something like, well, there still seems to be a 7% residual bias against blacks and especially Latinos in apartment rentals, but affirmative action compensates for much of that. Like, both sides can have a real conversation. <laughs> if you describe that as, say, a genocide, people are going to, at least you and I and most other people, are going to stop taking that seriously. In terms of those actual numbers, what the uh, representative did, I have to imagine, is take the total number of people under 18 that are killed every day. That would include 17-year-old gangbangers, Antifa fighters, anybody that's under 18, and say that's the number of gun tragedies. But that's like saying the total number of people shot by the police is the number of unarmed black men. The majority of people shot by the cops are attacking the cops with a pistol or a rifle. I got to take a break here. I want to come back. I got one more clip from Wilfred Riley that I want to play coming up next. And I ask him, why do people believe these numbers so easily, right? A congressman or senator in this case can just say these ridiculous numbers and people just go with it without any critical thought to it whatsoever. Why is that the case? We'll get his answer on that next. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Spread the word. 18 Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Uh, the theme of this hour has been moral panics and the stages of a moral panic and why politicians and activists and, and people in government uh, push these on us and, and why we keep falling for them. That's the we, just, we just went through maybe one of the biggest moral panics ever in COVID. You'd think we'd be wise to this by now, but we're not. They keep coming rapid fire and we keep falling for them. So uh, I want to play one more clip here from Wilfred Riley. We talked to him on my local show yesterday, and uh, he's a professor at Kentucky State. He's great. Again, I think he's uh, the next Thomas Sowell, just the way he thinks. Um, is uh, very soul-esque. Uh, so I asked him, I said, why do we believe these numbers so easily that people just throw out about hate crime statistics or gun violence statistics or whatever? Why do we believe it? Here's what he said. Well, that's an excellent question. But I mean, it, it, that really almost gets down to the nature of man in scientific or spiritual terms. I mean, we are some humans are a predator species. America is a warrior society, or at least we were traditionally. We respond quickly to things. And if someone that we generally trust, NBC News or something like this, mm -hmm. or CNN, MSNBC these days, are presenting this daily storyline of the, the problem here is white supremacy, a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't think my leaders would lie to me. The problem here must be white supremacy. And then in this country, the reaction 
reaction from a lot of young black and white and et cetera people is going to be, let's go get these white supremacists. And that's one of the reasons you've seen sort of left and right clashing in the streets. And the reality is that if you, if you looked at the full membership list for, you know, some storm front, you'd probably find that there are less than 20,000 actual white supremacists in the whole country. Yeah, we, should, we should fight real threats instead of boogeymen, I think would be one. Sure. Summary. One last point I want to make before we get to the border in the next hour. Uh, the, the term white... Gosh, this deserves hours. I got two minutes. Um, let me let me quote here. This is Hannah Nicole Jones. So whiteness doesn't mean skin color anymore. It's it's a it's a culture. It's white culture, white supremacy culture. And there's a lot of different aspects to it. Uh, and we'll get to that. But this is Hannah Nicole Jones, right? She is uh, the person behind the 1619 Project. She's the leader of what your kids are being taught in elementary school, right? She's the person behind the entire curriculum that's being taught in schools today. This is from November 4th of last year. She said, whiteness is not static and it's expandable when necessary. A lot of folks we don't think of as white think of themselves as white because the lines have never been entirely clear. That's the beauty of white supremacy. It's extremely adaptable. What? So whiteness is whatever the activists need it to be so they can keep in the words of James Lindsay, keep scapegoating and grifting. So when Asians are doing well, when Asians get into colleges at a much higher rate than black people, then, uh, well, Asians are acting white and they're um, white adjacent. But then when an Asian is the victim of a hate crime, oh, well, then they're a minority, they're an allied group, victims of white supremacy, another way for these activists to get attention and money and power. So whiteness is whatever they want it to be. I got a video of uh, an Asian woman getting called all sorts of terrible slurs on a bus. It's in Miami. And the camera pans over and it's, a, it's some homeless black guy doing it. It's a homeless guy, an addict, surely. But the left can spin that into white supremacy. Really, they could spin that into white supremacy. You got this homeless, addicted black man, clearly mental issues, saying uh, offensive slurs at an Asian person, and that's white supremacy. I'm not kidding. Well, he's poor and homeless and addicted because of, of the white systems, white, white power systems that have kept him down, prevented him and his ancestors from accessing health care and quality housing. That got him into a place where he acted like this. Also, he learned from white supremacists on how to treat people. And he was angry at an Asian person, rightfully so, because Asians are white adjacent. So she had privilege over him. So what he did was justified. I'm not kidding. That's the academic argument. And they got to do anything to make everything <laughs> white supremacy. Whiteness is whatever you want. And that's why you also hear the term whiteness. Whiteness. And remember, this is from the Smithsonian. They talk about aspects of white supremacy culture. Whiteness is showing up on time. Whiteness is believing in merit. Whiteness is trying to achieve excellence. Whiteness is proper English. Whiteness is, uh, they call it um, uh, something of the written word, supremacy of the written word. So writing properly. Whiteness is the concept of a standard. These are all white. So white isn't even a skin color to these activists anymore. White is an adjective used to describe anything bad. And it always will come back to your fault. And if you, if anyone truly believes that that is uh, a recipe for a functioning society, you're out of your mind. These people need to be outright rejected 
and prevented from having any more power and influence over our kids and over our culture. Coming up next, I want to talk about the border. I'm here in San Diego. Uh, 1,500 unaccompanied kids are being housed in our convention center starting uh, tomorrow. So we'll talk about the border next. Mike Slater from San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Team Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for the great Buck Sexton. Thanks for having me. Listen, I, I fully understand your disappointment right now. When I tune in to my favorite radio host and some other joker is there filling in, I didn't tune in for Mike Slater. I don't even know Mike Slater. And I don't like the sound of him. He's not Buck. Where's Buck? Buck will be back. Don't worry. Uh, but join us for a little bit here. You're already here. Might as well hang around for a while. I want to talk about the border. I got a couple questions about the border. Simple questions. That I'm, not, I'm not trying to be a jerk with these questions. These are actually legitimate questions. I got three. Uh, first, how many? This is to. Uh, these are my questions to Joe Biden, to Kamala, to Democratic politician, to Gavin Newsom, Governor of California, etc. How many illegal immigrants coming across the border is too many? That's. I'm not again. Not being a jerk. That's a legitimate question. At what point would you say? All right, maybe we should kind of figure out what's going on here. Is there a point? And what does that look like? That's my first question. Second, will we ever see any pictures of people coming across illegally or pictures inside of these detention facilities, particularly the kids who are staying in convention centers, Dallas and San Diego in particular? We'll talk about that in a minute. Also, how's it decided where these people are sent? Whether it's what convention center they're sent to while they remain in custody or where they are sent to once they're free to go now without even a court date because the system's so overwhelmed, purposefully overwhelmed, by the way. Those are my three questions, and I want to break down each of those in this segment here. Uh, first, just the general approach that the Biden team has taken to this. They're taking the, the, the Baghdad Bob approach. Are you familiar with, do you remember Baghdad Bob? Oh, we love Baghdad Bob. Baghdad Bob was the spokesperson for Saddam Hussein. And he was the guy who had this press conference outside downtown Baghdad. And he's standing there. He says, oh, there's no threat, no threat of any proof of existence of Americans in Baghdad. No infidels, no American infidels in Baghdad. They're not within 100 miles of Baghdad. Oh, it's an illusion. They're trying to sell an illusion. Meanwhile, there's American tanks rolling in the background behind him. <laughs> this guy's, oh, no Americans. None here. It's saying this is Joe Biden. No, there's no immigration crisis on the southern border. No, no immigrants here. There's no Guatemalans within 100 miles of the San Diego Convention Center. This is an illusion. And this is why Joe Biden and Kamala won't go to the border. They gotta keep the, the plausible deniability, right? They're, they're, they're asked every day if they're gonna go to the border. And they're like, oh, you know, yeah, sure, no, one day we'll go, yeah, yeah. No, they don't wanna go, because once they go, they can't play the ignorance game anymore. They lose their plausible deniability. They're never gonna go. The other day, Jen Psaki called it a crisis, at the, uh, the Biden spokesperson call it a crisis at the border and you're not supposed to call it a crisis at the border so one of the reporters said hold on you just called it a crisis at the border and she goes a uh, challenge challenge it's challenge at the border and he goes oh does, does this show that there's a difference in how the administration is handling it and she goes nope she literally said nope 
Nope. Next question. So it's not a crisis. It's a challenge is all. Now, I want to make the point quickly. It's not a challenge personally for them. None of this immigration, none of this illegal immigration affects them. Gavin Newsom, our governor in California, he's not affected by this. Just like he wasn't affected by COVID, his kids went to private school since September. Four kids in private school in person since September, but he won't let the people of California send their kids to school. How about that? You can't open up your business. You can't go out to eat. You can't be with your family, but he can go out with his wife to the French laundry. See how that works? Same thing with immigration. His job's not, his wages aren't lowered by tens of thousands of illegal immigrants coming across the border. His wages aren't lowered. He's not affected at this, by this at all. There's going to be no Guatemalans in his kids' private school, but there are at the schools along the border. Maybe no kids who speak English in any of these classes. So his kids' school's not affected. His wages aren't affected. No Hondurans are going to be shacking up in his pool house like they're cramped down into the convention center. So he's not personally affected by this at all. He's got no skin in the game, which is why they're like, yeah, sure, come on in. And they're not letting you see anything either. And that may be even worse than, or at least as bad as what's happening, is the fact that they won't let us see any of it. San Diego Convention. Right now there's 15,000 unaccompanied minors in federal custody, 15,000. 1,500 of them are being shipped to San Diego. And there's some in the Dallas Convention Center as well. Think about this, the convention center, like a giant convention center full of 1,500 13 to 17 year olds, unaccompanied kids, no adults, no parents. That's like a giant school, right? A 400 person class per class school is 1500 kids it's a lot of kids and it's right i don't know if you've been to the san diego convention center it's right downtown and it's just going to be on lockdown it's just uh, no one in or out right in front of our faces like who's going to be guarding this patrolling our convention centers right under our nose and you're going to know nothing about it there's never going to be any pictures or anything you can't know what's going on came across this article about a uh, photographer, a photojournalist. Uh, let me quote some of this here. This is amazing. He said, for the past four presidential administrations, I've accompanied U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents and photographed their encounters with migrants as they enforced immigration policy. So he's been doing this for four presidential administrations, a long time. He's been in this game a long time. He works for Getty, so he's not some right-wing activist guy. He works for Getty. He's been doing it for a long time. But he says, no longer. Last week, when I documented migrant detentions in El Paso, I had to do so from the Mexican side of the border, taking long-range shots. Until now, journalists have not had to stand in another country to cover what's happening in the United States. Amazing. For decades, the U.S. government has let photojournalists accompany Border Patrol agents and other officials as they surveil the land, but since the change in administration, again, this is no Trump lackey here, those agents have been physically blocking journalists from the riverbank. For example, after being turned down for official access on a trip in February, I followed a Border Patrol transport bus in my own vehicle to where they were detaining migrants. They stopped me before I got close enough to take pictures. They called a supervisor, ordered me to leave immediately. 
we've gone from the Trump era zero poli- zero tolerance policy towards immigrants to a Biden era zero access policy for journalists covering immigration. Here's the key. This development is unprecedented in modern history. So not only what's unprecedented, the amount of people coming across this quickly, that's completely unprecedented, but also the fact that no one's allowed to see it. Now, why is this guy especially important? This is the guy who took the picture of that little girl from Honduras crying uh, back in 2018. Remember this little girl? She's like three years old, pink shirt. She's looking up at her mommy crying. And this guy took that picture and Time Magazine photoshopped it, put a red background to it, and put Trump there standing down or standing, looking down callously at this little girl. And the the tweet was... um, what kind of country are we? Right, Trump's border separation policy. What kind of country are we? What kind of country does it? What kind of country rips children, rips babies from the arms of their mothers? Now, I remember when I saw that picture and there was this massive outrage about it. And I remember I said, oh, that's, there's, there's more to this story, I guarantee it. So it turns out that uh, this mother... Uh, it was nothing like what people pretended it was. This mother put the girl down for a second. It was 11 p.m. The girl was tired. She cried, and the mom picked her back up. That was it. That guy just took a picture for one second that she was, on, she was standing on the ground, and the family was never separated. And not one moment was the mother and this three-year-old separated, not for a second. And this is the second time that this mother has come across the border illegally. She was already deported once. I bring this up because that, first of all, that's just like such a hack job manipulation of that picture to emotionally manipulate you into Trump being a horrible, evil person. But I bring it up because it was that photographer who took the picture. And even then, even then, after all, there's the PR nightmare that that picture created. The Trump administration never stopped him from doing his job. 10,000 apprehensions on the Rio Grande Valley in Texas last week, 10,000, biggest ever, went completely unobserved by the public purposefully. And that is as big of a scandal as what's happening at the border itself. Because the left knows that if they can keep you from seeing it, then people will get bored, move on, and they can keep it going. I call it the Governor Blackface effect. Right, Uh, Governor Ralph Northam in Virginia Right, the blackface controversy, and everyone's like, "You got to go. He's got to be. He's got to get resign. He's got to go." Democrats in the state, you got to go. You got to go. And he just waited, just waited a couple weeks. It went away, and he's still the governor. As we, the people, move on to the next shiny object, and that's what the Biden administration is doing here. They're just hoping we forget about it. Now, you and I will not, but most people will. All conservatives want is order at the border. Who is coming? Where are you going? We should be in charge of our immigration policy, not other countries. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, what's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater, San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. On my local show in San Diego, we talk a lot about these diversity, inclusion, equity training seminars, and we expose all these things and just prepare our listeners for when they have to go through one of these and when their kids are fed this propaganda as well. So Cigna just released 
uh, or they didn't release it. Someone leaked the Cigna Diversity Training Seminar. 73,000 employees. It's one of the largest healthcare providers in the country. Uh, one of the slides, it says, check your privilege. And it lists different groups of privilege. Able-bodied, 25 to 55. Cis male. Isn't it amazing that cis male has become a thing, like cisgendered? That means you actually are the gender that the doctor said you were based on your anatomy. It matches. Oh, good. I'm cis, cis male. Heterosexual, white, and Christian. So that's me. I'm all of those. Buck is all of those. Whoops. We are super privileged. So check your privilege. The Christian edition there is an interesting new one. Christian. Get ready for that one to be ramped up big time. And then what takes this story to the next level is there's a chat log between an employee and a hiring manager. And they were filling someone, filling a position. And there was someone there with, with years of experience and the whole thing. Uh, and the person says, the candidate, a white man, could not be interviewed because he did not meet the diversity criteria. Could not even be interviewed. This uh, woke stuff, was, we could talk about it forever. Literally, we've talked hours and hours about this stuff. And I have three minutes here. But let me give you this takeaway. And, and please... Feel free to take this and, and use this. Share this with someone who needs to hear it. We always hear about the work, right? You got to do the work, people. Do the work. You hear these activists, these woke people say, you got to do the work. When people do these groveling apologies, they do the same. They're like, oh, I'm going to take some time off so that I can really reflect and do the work. Robin D'Angelo, she talks about how white people need to do the work regarding their privilege. It's always called the work. You got to understand your bias, your privilege. You got to do the work. This is one aspect of how it's a, a cult. Right? You got to do more and more and more, 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 do more, do more works. You got to do works more and more and more so that you can try to achieve a higher plane of understanding that no one else can achieve. You got to be more aware, more woke than anyone else. So the work is what you got to read. You got to read the great works. Right? You got to read the canon. You got to read their Bible, White Fragility. How to Be an Anti-Racist, uh, Between the World and Be by Tanahashi Coates. you got to read the work. Fine. Read those. But if you don't also read Intellectuals and Race by Thomas Sowell and Authentically Black by John McWhorter, and if you don't also read White Guilt by Shelby Steele, books by three brilliant black intellectuals, if you don't also read those books, then your work is incomplete. And why are you racist? Why are you discriminating against these three scholars of color? You got you to do the work. I've done my work. I've read all sides. Have you done your work? Feel free to take that and use that against, not against, use that with someone. By the way, they have a list of words that you can't say at Cigna as well, right? So no reference to mother or father, right? We've got to be more trans-inclusive. Right? You got silly ones like no more man hours. They're now called work hours. No more chairman. It's chairperson. Dumb things like that. Uh, then you have all gendered terms, right? Uh, because if you speak of husband and wife, then that's, uh, or male and female, then that's uh, perpetuating the binary nature of gender, and we all know that gender is on a spectrum. But here's a third category of politically correct words that I, I, that I really want to call out. 
I call them minstrel words. So these are things that have an absurdly vague reference to something that maybe a hundred years ago existed, maybe that we're supposed to be offended about today. Remember Cat in the Hat or Dr. Seuss was canceled a couple weeks ago and Cat in the Hat is the next book of Dr. Seuss that's going to be canceled. And I remember reading like, I wonder why, why was Cat in the Hat going to be canceled? It's because the cat resembles a minstrel show with his floppy bow tie and white gloves. And I'm like, what are you talking? There's no one alive today who's ever been to a minstrel show. No one even knows what a minstrel show is. But I'm constantly reminded about things that exist today that are a modern day minstrel show. <laughs> what is what do you mean? So these are minstrel show words, right? So one of these is brown bag. So at Cigna, you can't say brown bag anymore, like a brown bag lunch. Right? You got to replace it with learn lunch and learn or grab and go. I don't know. So I'm thinking brown bag. Why is brown bag offensive? Apparently, during segregation, which the woke want to get back to again, when deciding if a person was black or light-skinned enough to rent an apartment or eat at a restaurant, the person, someone would brown bag them and use a grocery store bag to gauge their skin tone. So, listen, I have no idea if that ever happened. It probably didn't. But the idea that I can't call my lunch a brown bag lunch anymore because 70 years ago this maybe happened once under the premise that like someone alive today is offended by that is absolutely absurd and what are are we supposed to do hey slater um i'll grab your lunch for you from the break room uh what which one is it oh it's in the paper bag uh what color what color paper bag oh the uh uh uh, the the the, um uh, it's in the, uh, uh, hazel, hazelnut, hazelnut bag. Yeah. You know, the, um, the, uh, uh, car, carm, caramel, burnt sienna. It's the, my, uh, my lunch is in the burnt sienna bag. Just one. Just grab, grab the burnt sienna bag. That's mine. Ridiculous. Don't play the euphemism treadmill. People are always coming up with more euphemisms to seem and project their enlightenment above everyone else and to prove that they're more offended by things than anyone else. That makes them more woke. Don't play the game. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, what's going on, Team Buck? Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Super grateful you're here. Uh, So we've been talking about uh, the border and and wokeness and stuff. I want to switch gears a little bit here and share a story that is uh, quite a peek into the crystal ball of what's coming for our country. Uh, we, we need to stop this transgender moral panic. Moral panic's been the theme of the show today. Uh, we need to stop it now because it's only going to get worse. And I have a story here that uh, seems impossible. But I assure you, it's happening right now. We'll tell that next. First, ExpressVPN. One of the problems with the internet today, right? It's free. Everything on the internet's free, right? Well, no, it's not. Uh, years ago, I remember the first time I heard, you maybe remember the first time you heard that uh, if it's free, then you're not the customer, you're the product. You are being sold. You're being sold. So when you're on the internet now, you got to think who is selling you and who's buying you. Right? Who's getting a hold of your search history and your viewing habits and what are they doing with that information? How do you get free from that? ExpressVPN. Right? So right now, when you search for something online or you watch a video or you click a link, you're getting tracked. And they match your activity with your 
IPN, or your IP address, excuse me, your IP address. But when you use ExpressVPN, these companies don't see your IP address. Give them a call. ExpressVPN.com slash buck and stop handing over your data to big tech companies and the government. Protect yourself. ExpressVPN.com slash buck and you get three extra months free. ExpressVPN.com slash buck to learn more. Team Buck, Mike Slater, San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. I want to share a story here that you will not believe. I want you to imagine that your wife is abusing your child. Imagine that your wife is abusing your child or anyone. It could be anyone. Imagine someone's abusing your child. And when you try to stop it, you get thrown in jail. You, you just have to watch it happen. And there's nothing you can do because the force of the government is working against you. I have here a look into the crystal ball as to where we're heading with our obsession over transgenderism today. And the, this idea of transgender kids, it's so wild. AOC the other day sent a tweet out about transgender kids. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? Transgender kids. There's no such thing. And we're just supposed to go along with that as if this, oh yeah, sure. Tra she said, trans kids are amazing, wonderful, and powerful or something like that. It's like, trans kids, listen to yourself. And you have to comply. The activists, they don't, the activists left, they don't stop at tolerance. They demand compliance and full-blown acceptance and celebration of what they're spouting. So here's the story. It's in Canada. It's about law C-16. This is the law, C-16, that uh, got Jordan, Jordan Peterson famous years ago when C-16 was first proposed in Canada. And he said, among other things, he said, this is what's going to happen when this law passes. And sure enough, here it is. Husband and wife got divorced. Uh, at the time, their daughter was 11 at the divorce. She's now 15 and she is uh, transgender. Now there's no such thing as transgenderism. She is a gender dysmorphic is the technical term. You can't change genders. It's impossible. So she is a girl and she wants to live as a boy. And she's felt that way since around the age 11. The mom wants to give her puberty blocking, puberty blockers and hormones, male hormones. The dad says, no. But the court said that the dad cannot stop the mom from doing this. And the court said that he cannot speak about this at all to the press. And if he did, it would be a form of family violence. He would be committing violence against his daughter if he tried to stop her mom from abusing her. So the dad did speak out and the court wrote back. This is what the court said. The father's refusal to respect the boy's decision regarding his gender identity is troublesome. He was arrested. He's in jail right now. Could face up to five years in jail. He's in jail right now. He's in jail. As we speak, 
Like, I'm not making this story up. This isn't, oh, geez, you know, if this law passes, maybe one day this crazy thing could happen. Now, that's what Jordan Peterson said years ago. Now we're there. The crazy thing is happening. Here's the original court order. Uh, the dad shall be restrained from one, attempting to persuade the daughter, his daughter, to abandon treatment for gender dysphoria, addressing his daughter by his birth name, and three, referring to his daughter as a girl or with female pronouns, whether to her directly or to third parties. Now, conservative outlets have taken the story and they say they've been kind of they've been kind of characterizing it as, oh, he was arrested for calling his daughter a girl and a she. A more accurate, like a little more nuanced, a more accurate description is he was arrested for violating the court order that says he can't call her a she or do interviews and speak publicly about it. That's it was all those things that he was arrested for. But if your ex-wife was abusing your daughter and making her sterile and destroying her life and mutilating her body, you better you bet I'd be speaking out. Can you imagine the, the, the helplessness in front of your eyes as your ex-wife is doing that to your daughter and, and the courts are protecting it, protecting the mom, abusing her. That is absolute torture. So listen, we've talked to a ton of people on my local show um, who have detransitioned. Walter Walt Hayer, excuse me, Walt Heyer, is he runs this group called SexChangeRegret.com. Wonderful resource if you know anyone who is suffering from gender dysphoria. Um, he says one, and we talked to many people who have done this process as well. He says one hundred percent of the time, there's a traumatic event in childhood that causes uh, pain and confusion in a child we said 100 he said i've worked with thousands of gender dysmorphic kids and adults 100 percent of the time there's a trauma that causes them to hate themselves and to want to cancel themselves and be someone else thinking that that would make the pain go away he says it needs to be dealt with psychologically which is what the dad is saying uh, but we have this massive movement today that is that believes that we need to treat this medically and mutilate and shoot kids full of hormones. This is insane. This is the most insane thing going on today. And the reason why this, this matters, right, other than just it itself, is if the left can convince you to go along with this, they can convince you to go along with anything. If you do not take a stand against pumping little kids full of hormones, if you don't take a stand on the idea that there are two genders and you can't switch them, if you don't stand up for those truths, then there is nothing that they can't convince you and, and, and get you to follow along with. There's nothing. If they can convince a person to say that there's no such thing as gender and you can switch genders, <laughs> please, they got them. Hook, line, and sinker. There's no, there's no line that they'll then draw, right? Once, you, once you're like, oh, yeah, no, there's many genders and you can switch them all whenever you want. When are you going to draw the line and be like, oh, yeah, but don't... Uh, you know, don't take away my Second Amendment rights. Like, no, you're way past that. You're way, way past that. They're getting you to believe the most ridiculous thing conceivable. And there's no going back from that. So I'll tell you what happened to this family. What probably happened. It's a broken home, right? Clearly, it was an unhappy time early on. They got divorced. That's traumatic. And I guarantee you that this daughter thought, as all kids do in a divorce, that it was her fault. And I bet she thought maybe if I was a boy, this wouldn't have happened. I bet at one point in her childhood, one of the parents said something like, they've always wanted a son. Or they, um, 
maybe they brought her to, I don't know, ballet, and the dad made some comment of, oh, I wish I had a son, and we could go to wrestling practice or something. And the daughter internalized that of, oh, if I was a boy, I would have been loved more, or if I was a boy, then this divorce wouldn't have happened. Guarantee you it's something like that, if not physical abuse itself. She was looking for a way to express her pain. She was getting in trouble in school. Her dad said hanging out with boys, cut off her hair, started wearing a toupee, attempted suicide. Uh, Clearly some serious mental health issues here. And the school that she goes to has a program called SOGI123. Everyone has a sexual orientation and gender identity. That's S-O-G-I, sexual orientation, gender identity. It's the sex ed program they have in Canada where they talk all about transgenderism. So the parents, this is actually what happened. What I talked before is just conjecture. This is what actually happened. The parents sent the daughter to the school counselor and the counselor trained in this woke, uh, inclusive, transsexual stuff, changed the daughter's name without telling the parents. So the daughter started going by a different name. I don't know. The, I don't know the girl's name. Her name is Mary, and now she goes by Bob. Okay. So the, and the school's like, "Yep, you're Bob. Let's do it. You're Bob." She canceled herself. This thing about think how sad this is. This girl hates herself so much. She wanted to run from herself and her life so much. She canceled herself, made up a new identity, and the school endorsed this and celebrated this and encouraged this. And the school forwarded her to this this person, Dr. Wallace Wong, who works in Canada and down the street from my house in San Diego. Uh, This doctor got in trouble a while back. He was giving a seminar to to parents of transgender kids, and they were wondering how to get more money from the Canadian government. And this doctor said, so what you need is to pull a stunt. Suicide every time, then they'll give you what you need. Kids learn that very fast. So they forwarded to this quack doctor who thought that this girl needed puberty blockers when she really needed therapy. And now here we are. This is exactly what Jordan Peterson was talking about. And it's all done in the name of this dad is committing family violence. So if you don't acknowledge your kid's preferred gender, it's violence. Now this was during a divorce, which means the the courts had some role in this, right? I wonder what happens, what will happen or when it will happen in a marriage, in a married family when the father doesn't want to go along with this and is called a child abuser. Will CPS get involved then? It's just a matter of time, right? I got a clip I want to play next of a testimony inside, in front of a um, Missouri, in Missouri, uh, from a dad who says his boy is a girl. And I want to uh, play that for you next and you can see how far down this road we've gone too far. Mike Slater, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sticking around. This is a uh, video that was sent out by the ACLU. This is the father of a transgendered daughter. Again, there's no such thing as transgender. This is the father of a daughter, um, father of a girl who wants to live as a boy. No, no, wait. No, the other way around. <laughs> Flip it around. This is the father of a boy who wants to live as a girl. And he's speaking in front of the Missouri House of Representatives about his experience. And he starts off saying that, you know, people don't get it. And he says, I didn't get it when this was all first happening. Uh, But here's what he says from here. Again, this is a boy he's talking about. Here it is. For years, um, 
I would not let my daughter wear girl clothes. I did not let her play with girl toys. I forced my daughter to wear boy clothes and uh, get short haircuts, play on boy sports teams. Why did I do this? To protect my child. I did not want my daughter or her siblings to get teased. And truth be told, I did it to protect myself as well. I wanted to avoid those inevitable questions uh, as to why my child did not look and act like a boy. My child was miserable. I cannot overstate that. She was absolutely miserable, especially at school. No confidence, no friends, no laughter. I, and I, I honestly say this, I had a child who did not smile. We did that for years. We did that against the advice of teachers, therapists, and other experts. I remember the day everything changed for me. I'd gotten home from work, and my daughter and her brother were in the front lawn. And uh, she had, my daughter had sneaked on one of her um, older sister's play dresses. And they wanted to go across the street and play with the neighbor's kids. It was time for dinner. I said, come in. Uh, she asked, can she go across the street? I said, no. She, she asked me if she, if she went inside and put on boy clothes, could she then go across the street and play? And it, it, it's then that it hit me that my daughter was equating being good with being someone else. I was teaching her to deny who she is. As a parent, the one thing we cannot do, the one thing, is silence our child's spirit. And so on that day, my wife and I stopped silencing our child's spirit. The moment we allowed my daughter to be who she is, to grow her hair, to wear the clothes she wanted to wear, she was a different child. And I mean, it was immediate. It was a total transformation. I now have a... So, uh, a couple things. First, the same people who say we need to get rid of gender stereotypes also say, my son wants to wear a dress, therefore he's a girl. Which is a gender stereotype. Oh, my son wants long hair? He must be a girl. Andrew Sullivan, writer... He says, I remember my grandmother telling my mom that I wasn't a real boy. Thank God my parents insisted that this atypical boy could very much be atypical and a boy. Right? So we've got we to understand this fully. There's people who, like me who say boys wear boy clothes, girls wear girl clothes. Okay, that's very out of fashion right now. You can't say such a thing like that, but I stand with that. Boys wear boy clothes, girls wear girl clothes, right? Then there's people who say... Okay, boys can be more feminine. Girls can be a little more masculine. Okay, that's fine. All right, whatever. It's a whole new level to say, oh, my son likes girl clothes and long hair. He's now my daughter. My son likes girl clothes and dolls. He's now a girl. Let's get him on the fast road to puberty blockers and genital mutilation and pretend that we can make his body match his spirit. And then there... The good guys, they're the noble, virtuous, compassionate ones. How are people falling for this? There's another video making the rounds of a, it's a man who's living as a woman sitting on a bed and he's talking to a little boy. No, no, a little, yeah, he's talking to a little girl. That's right. He's talking to a little girl. And the, the man says, do you like doing quiet girly activities? Or do you like jumping around and being crazy and tackling everybody? 
and the girl says boy activities and then the, the pervert goes oh that means you're transgender and that's okay that's just what it's called and it's like oh you that's that's a bit of a leading question do you like doing lame quiet girly things or do you like being awesome oh you like being awesome that means you're transgender the kid's like six do not let this stand you cannot let this go on anymore but things are so twisted and so messed up that if your daughter comes to you and says, I want to become a boy, if you say, if, and if you do things that helps your daughter be comfortable as a girl, you're committing the sin of gender conversion, right? So your daughter comes to you and says, I want to be a boy, and you help your daughter be comfortable as a girl, that's gender conversion, if you pump your daughter full of puberty blockers and hormones and, and give her a double mastectomy, that's gender affirmation. See how backwards it is? You must stop this now. This is the point of propaganda. It's to get you to believe the most ridiculous things possible. And then once you believe that, they can get you to believe anything. That's what this whole transgender thing is all about. Coming up next, I want to talk about why, uh, why so many people in our culture seek victimhood status why do they seek it and celebrate it we used to be a country that that celebrated overcoming obstacles what has changed we'll talk about that next mike slater in san diego filling in for buck sexton spread the word team buck mike slater here in san diego filling in for the great buck sexton thanks for having me and thanks not for changing the station right away immediately when you don't hear buck's voice uh buck's the man but he'll be back uh very soon uh it's an honor to fill in for the great buck session we've been friends for a long time so really cool to sit in for him um i want to talk about victimhood have you ever wondered why so many people in our culture today seek out victimhood they seek out they declare themselves victim they celebrate their victimhood people are tripping over themselves to tell everyone what a what a victim they are that's weird that's that's a new thing we used to want to be seen as someone who overcomes difficult things in life right you didn't want to be seen as a victim you do anything to not be seen as a victim you're someone who overcomes trials there would be an obstacle in front of you and you would want people to see you overcome it and the larger the obstacle the greater the triumph but today, there's an obstacle in front of you, and you just you tell everyone how you, I can't even. And it's backwards. It's the smaller the obstacle, the greater the triumph, right? It's, it's a contest to see who can be offended by the most mundane, simple, everyday things, right? So someone's like, oh, I'm offended by Mr. Potato Head. No, well, I'm offended by Aunt Jemima. Oh, well, I'm offended by Cat in the Hat. Oh, well, I'm offended by the fact that they sell cotton at Hobby Lobby. That's my favorite of all those. Right? And it's just people just trying to out offend or out be offended, out victimhood other people with smaller and smaller offenses. But again, for all of our history, it's been people trying to prove how much better they are by the bigger things they've overcome. It's, we got it totally backwards. The tinier the object, the more fragile you are, the more sensitive you are to the smallest little sites, proves how weak you are. And this is seen as a good thing. How did that happen? That's what I want to talk about here. So I think what we're seeing, there's a lot of forces, surely. This is one element. 
is a lot of self-imposed oppression. Self-imposed. People oppressing themselves and people choosing to live a life of oppression. They're choosing it. Surely there used to be actual oppression, but that's not the situation anymore. So why would someone choose to live oppressed? Why would someone choose to pretend to be oppressed? Why would someone choose to pretend to be a victim? Especially, I mean, there's a lot of hate crime hoaxes, right? Why would someone do that? Why would you make up a victimhood story? But it's like the thing about Jossie Smollett, right? Jossie Smollett, remember he made up the whole story about getting beat up in like New York City. It was like 10 degrees, the whole thing, right? You'd think the story would be, oh, these guys came out of nowhere and tried to beat me up and I just crushed them. I wrecked them. I destroyed them. I beat them up and they ran away scared. <laughs> right? You think it'd be that, but it, it wasn't. It was, oh, beat up, beat up. Oh, I got beat up. I will. Like, why, why are you pretending to be... If you're going to make something up, at least make yourself up to be the victor, right? Why would you make yourself up to be the poor victim and the whole thing? Okay, so what's this about? All right, let's back it up. Have you ever heard of Munchausen syndrome? Munchausen syndrome. It's got an interesting story. I won't bore you with it, but there was a guy named Munchausen. He was a, a baron in Germany, and he was fighting these wars, or he fought in a war in the early 1700s. And he would come back home, and he made up these wildly exaggerated stories about his military exploits abroad. And there was a writer at the time who wrote a book and the main character's name was Munchausen and Munchausen would make up these ridiculous stories about how he fought a 40 foot crocodile and he rode on top of a cannonball and he traveled to the moon. And all these. So Munchausen became a word to describe wild, bombastic, absurd claims out of nowhere. That was Munchausen. So it was late 1700s. Fast forward 1951. There was a British doctor who worked at the mental psych ward, and he noticed people making up illnesses. And he called it Munchausen's syndrome. After the Baron, people making up stories, people making up illnesses. He's like, this is odd. So you got Munchausen, people making up illnesses. Then you have something called Munchausen by proxy. This is when somebody intentionally makes somebody else sick, like somebody in their care. If you remember the sixth sense, that's what that was about, right? So you make a child sick in order to get attention and sympathy for you. You can make, like, if there's an older person who's under your care, you make them sick in order to get attention for you. That's Munchausen by proxy. Then you have Munchausen by internet. Uh, This is when people make up illnesses or tragedies in their life to, to get sympathy and attention from others on the internet. And the internet's perfect for this because no one can tell if you're lying or not. And we all know this and, and, some people do this genuinely, right? And it's not meant, although maybe it kind of still is. But like if you put something on Facebook and you get like three likes and a comment, right? But then you put something about your dog being sick or something. You get a, a thousand likes and, and, you know, a million comments about how sorry they are for your right, whole thing, right? That's Munchausen by internet. And some people just lie about things. So here's this doctor who sees these people making up illnesses. And he says their lies had no purpose. They did not want to defraud the state or solicit charitable donations. In pursuit of nothing more than attention and an audience, they were willing to tolerate painful and intrusive medical procedures. The most remarkable feature of the syndrome is the apparent senselessness of it. 
So I'm going to argue here that this victimhood status that people seek, it's actually not that senseless. It makes a lot of sense in a twisted way. They have a reason for it, the people who make up their victimhood. I think a lot of people have lived either a traumatic life or they've had a traumatic experience in their life. And they're not getting, they, they've never gotten the attention they think it deserved. Or people have lived a very boring, meaningless life and have not received any detention that they've always wanted. So because they haven't gotten the attention they deserved or the attention they wanted, they attach themselves to a much larger event in order to get some attention from that. I'll give you some examples. 1998, there were two people who performed at a Holocaust remembrance event. It was a concert. And they were child survivors of the Holocaust. So it was this beautiful event. They, they each had these haunting, heroic stories of the pain and the torture that they experienced inside concentration camps. And they talked about how they both escaped and survived and amazing stories. They wrote books about it and they traveled around the world talking about it. Well, someone said, hey, you two should go get some lunch together and, sh and share your story. So they did. They got lunch. And it turns out they were both lying. Both of them. They both made it all up. Why? They each lived traumatic lives. And they wanted to be attached to something of meaning. And they did it by claiming to be a victim of a terrible thing. And they got the sympathy that they've always wanted. They didn't get sympathy for the actual trauma that they did experience in their lives. But that didn't matter. They were getting sympathy. Whether they lied to get it didn't matter. They were getting it. And this happens to an extent in every traumatic event. Another dramatic one, 9-11. Uh, there's one woman. She was uh, on the 78th floor. And she survived, and she spun this harrowing tale. Uh, there was a, At one point, there was a, a man who was dying, and he told her to give his wedding ring to his soon-to-be widow. And she promised she would, and she was telling all these stories. And none of it happened. 9-11 did, of course, but she wasn't there. She was a nurse in Spain. She wasn't even in the country. She was in Spain. She never profited from this. She didn't write a book or anything. She just wanted to feel connected to it for her own emotional benefit. It gave her a meaning. It was a type of Munchausen syndrome. And like I said, every traumatic event, people do this to a different degree because we're just super narcissistic all the time. So we like to center ourselves into every story that exists. So every time there's a natural disaster, hurricane, tsunami, shooting, fire, I guess the shooting is not a natural disaster, but any disaster, right? People always want to center themselves, right? Where were you when? That whole thing. Right? Oh, when I first heard about it, me and my family, we evacuated here and we did this and our house that and whatever, right? It's all, it always ends up being about us. We all do it to an extent. I got to take a break here because I got, I got part two coming up. But here, here's my first argument. Something to think about, something to chew on here. Many of the racial grievances today are first, or one, people who have had lives with trauma and they feel like the trauma has not been given the sympathy it deserves. Why do not enough people feel bad for me that I was abused? Why do not enough people feel bad for me that I grew up poor? Why do not enough people feel bad for me that I was bullied in school? Why do people not feel bad enough for me because of this trauma? And they're not getting it. 
So they associate themselves as victims of, well, when, it, when it's coming to racial grievance, they attach themselves as victims of the great, one of the greatest tragedies in history, slavery. I don't get enough attention. I didn't get enough attention. I haven't gotten enough attention for this trauma in my life. So I'm just going to say I'm a victim of the legacy of slavery. Are you? Well, no, no more than the, that. Those people who said they were Holocaust survivors, or the woman who said she was a 9/11 survivor while in Spain. You're not, and you are not any closer related to slavery than those people were to those things they made up. But it gives you an emotional connection to something that gives you the public sympathy that you think you're entitled to. So it's people who have experienced a trauma that they have not, they feel has not been given the attention it, deserve, it deserves, or it's people who feel like they've lived a pretty meaningless, empty life. And that makes sense. We've all grown up in a nihilist culture. Nothing matters. We came from chance. This is all there is. You die. There is no God. Right? It's pretty, pretty lame existence. So people are empty inside. And they've decided there's many ways to try to find meaning when you feel like that. But they've decided to find meaning by associating themselves with the terrible thing, slavery. I'll end it here for now. Let me give I got another thought on this next. But let's chew on that for a minute and see what you think about that. And I got some stories of people... Uh, doing this to a really dramatic degree. We'll do that next. Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton on why people seek out victimhood. It's a new version of um, Munchausen syndrome. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for being here. We're talking about a victimhood and why people seek out victimhood status, why they declare themselves victims and celebrate their victimhood. We used to be a people who celebrated overcoming obstacles and now we're a people who, who look out for ways to be victims. It's very bizarre. So why do we do this? And my argument here is that it's a type of Munchausen syndrome where uh, they feel like their trauma in childhood has not been, uh, has not received the sympathy that they feel it deserves. So they attach themselves to a, a bigger traumatic event and piggyback off of that and get sympathy one way or the other. Or it's people who have lived a, just a meaningless life and try to find meaning by attaching themselves to a meaningful thing. And you get more sympathy that way if it's a bad thing, of course. Like, oh, I'm a victim of the legacy of slavery. It's like, well, no, you're not. Helen Lewis. Oh, excuse me, Jessica Krug. Excuse me, Jessica Krug. Helen Lewis wrote an article about these people. Jessica Krug in The Atlantic. Jessica Krug, she was a black immigrant from the Caribbean. She was a tenured professor at George Washington University, and she wrote all these books about African-American history in Latin America, won awards and fellowships. And it was all a lie. She was a white Jewish girl from the suburbs of Kansas City. <laughs> But she lived life as this black immigrant. And she finally admitted to it. And she says, when I was a teenager fleeing trauma, I could just run away to a new place and become a new person. I developed a new identity. It's really not that different from transgenderism as we talked about in the last hour. Why do you hate the person you really are? What are you running from? She says, to say that I clearly have been battling some unaddressed mental health demons for my entire life is obvious. Mental health issues likely explain why I assumed a false identity initially as a youth and why I continued to develop it for so long. The mental health professionals assure me that this is a common response to some of the severe trauma that marked my early childhood and teen years. Yep. Makes sense. H.G. Carrillo, he was a writer and, and, and a professor of English at George Washington University as well. He was a Cuban immigrant. He left Cuba at the age of seven with his family, wrote all these books about that experience. Uh, he passed away from COVID, unfortunately. Uh, but when he did, his family released a statement of who he really was. And he wasn't a Cuban immigrant. He was a black guy from Detroit. His last name was not Carrillo, it was Carol. 
My favorite example of this is Alec Baldwin's wife, Alaria. She pretends that she's from Spain and she would talk in this accent, right? She, she talks in this Spanish accent, which I can't do. And she, once she was on like today's show and she was doing a cooking and she's like, oh yes, you put a little bit of this and you put a little bit of that. And uh, you put in some, uh, how do you say, what's the word? Uh, uh, cucumbers, you put in some cucumbers. She's from Boston. <laughs> she's not from Spain, she's from Boston. She calls her kids the Baldwinitos. Her name's Hillary. She's, her name's not Hilaria. Her name's Hillary from Boston of two white parents. Okay, I got a ton of these. Rachel Dolezal is the most famous example, right? She was the president of the Spokane, Washington NAACP, and she's white. Her trauma was that she, was, she says she was raised by a cult-like fundamentalist Christian family, and she hated her childhood, and she would imagine when she was a kid that she was adopted. So she would make up these fake identities in her head in order to distance herself from her existence. And she never stopped doing it. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's messed up, but it makes perfect sense. This is Munchausen syndrome. It's a type of Munchausen. I don't have a funny name for it, right? I mean, you got Munchausen, Munchausen by proxy, Munchausen by internet. I don't know what this is called. Munchausen by appropriation or something. I don't know what the right word is, but when you claim to be a member of an oppressed group when you're not, we live in an empathetic society too much. <laughs> There's too much value in being seen as a victim. Especially when we live in a very dichot like we live in a Marxist framework where you're either the oppressed or the oppressor, right? So you don't want to be the oppressor. You don't want to be the perpetrator. You don't want to be the, the terrible person. So if you're not that, well, you got to be the oppressed. You don't want to be the oppressor. So you're better off just being the oppressed. And even if you are an oppressor, like, or let's say you pretend to be an oppressor, like you're, you read white fragility and you're a guilty white person, right? Yeah, you claim to be part of the oppressor class, but you're now woke version of it. And you're a victim of the white supremacy culture that has created, that has made you an oppressor. So you're in victimhood, even though you're, it's all very convoluted. But the point is, you got to be one or the other. Why do, why? People love to be victims. Gets attention. It's much easier to, gosh, it's so much easier to be a victim than to actually overcome things. Overcoming things is very hard. Much easier to be a victim. Much easier. Do you know how easy it is to tear down a statue? Piece of cake. I, I, I can tear down a statue in no time. I could never build a statue. If you could give me all the materials, the bronze and the stone and the marble and say, hey, later, build a statue. Like, build a statue of George Washington. I wouldn't look nothing like George Washington. It'd be a joke. But if you said, hey, Slater, tear down this statue of George Washington, I just give me a rope. No problem. It's much harder to overcome. It's much harder to build. It's way easier to be a victim, way easier to tear down. And when you do pretend to be a victim, you get a type of meaning out of it. And people pay attention. These are some extreme examples, but how many people around you do a similar version of it? Claiming to be a victim, claiming to be oppressed when they're not. Or if they are, it's all self-imposed. No one wants to hear that. We need to be a society that once again values overcoming obstacles in life. We need to encourage and celebrate that once again. Mike Slater in San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater in San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. Gosh, we've covered a ton today. We've talked about transgenderism. We told a 
horrific story of a father in Canada whose ex-wife is abusing her child by excuse me, abusing their daughter by giving her puberty blockers and the whole thing. And the courts threw him in jail because he's against it. We told that story earlier. Talked all about the border. I'm here in San Diego. They're shipping, and I think tomorrow or the next day, 1,500 13 to 17 year olds to live in our convention center downtown. No photographs of anything, not allowed at all. So we talked about Biden's border policies. Um, and then what we do in the beginning? What was the first segment of the show? What did we? Oh, yeah, yeah. We talked about the truth of uh, hate crimes and crime statistics and. Obama says you should be scared to go outside your house in America today. It's like, what are you talking about? So we gave the truth about all that. You can, of course, find that on the uh, the podcast section. Uh, our last couple minutes together, I, I want to talk about the difference between the progressive worldview and the conservative worldview when it comes to inequality. So super important. And once you understand this, then everything starts to make sense. Like why progressives say some things they do about inequality and, and why they're all worked up about it also. So when a progressive sees an inequality in something, an inequality would be, uh, or an inequity, they call it an inequity. Uh, it would be there. there's too many Asian and white kids in the uh, advanced classes at school and not enough black and Hispanic kids, so therefore we're going to get rid of all advanced classes. Okay, so they see an inequity there. When they see an inequity, or I'll give you another one. This is my favorite example. In San Francisco, it's illegal, it was illegal to jump the turnstiles to get on their train. Well, a disproportionate number of black people were jumping the turnstiles and, and getting tickets. So therefore, there's an in inequity there, and the law is racist. So they got rid of the law, and now it's legal to jump the turnstiles. Okay. So when a progressive sees an inequity in something, They've fully digested the Marxist worldview that the world is constantly, and everything in it, is a battle between the oppressed and the oppressors. So if there's an inequity, it's due to oppression. If there's an inequity, someone is oppressing the oppressed. And our job as the warriors, the social justice warriors, are to find out who is doing the oppressing and hold them accountable. Make sense? A conservative looks at an inequity and asks what's at the root of this specifically what cultural differences exist that resulted in this inequity the simplest example it's like equal pay day or it was yesterday or something i don't know so we're back i just yesterday i just heard all the same old arguments goodness about how women make less than men it's total nonsense so They'll throw out this number that they made up and they'll say, look, there's an inequity. Women are paid less than men. It's oppression. Male patriarchy, whole thing. The go-to example that they use, I don't know why the left uses this. Yesterday at the White House, Megan Rapino from the U.S. women's soccer team spoke, talked about how oppressed she was. And it's like, give me a break. I don't know why they keep using the women's soccer team about how they make less than the men's soccer team. That's the easiest example ever to rebuke. But anyway, conservatives look at Let's, say, let's do the soccer team. Conservatives look at the, the, the fact that the women's soccer team makes less than the men's soccer team and says, oh, men's soccer is the most popular sport in the world and no one watches women's soccer. Therefore, women soccer players get paid less. End of story. There's a controversy the other day of uh, the men's weight room during the NC2A basketball tournament and the women's weight room. And it's like, oh, 
men's basketball, one of the most popular sports, tons of money being made. Women's college basketball is a charity event subsidized by men's basketball. Like, I don't know, what are we, like, you're, you're like, you get any weight room. Like, what are we talking, right? But they, the left doesn't look at it. It's, oh, oh, we're being oppressed. Now, let's look outside of sports. Um, you know, why is there a, a pay gap, mathematical, statistically? Well, women make different career decisions. Particularly the decision to have kids. San Diego just released a study saying that women make less than men. Um, in San Diego, San Diego employees. And it's like, yeah, that's because there's not a lot of female firefighters. And firefighters make more money than anyone else. It's just career decisions, okay? So when you account for that type of stuff, all the discrepancy goes away. Does that make sense? So you either look at, the progressives look at who's oppressed, conservatives look at who, or what cultural differences, like what's at the root of this? What, why, what dis- different decisions are made? that result in inequity and and inequity is not necessarily a bad thing. I got another one for you. This one's interesting. I came across this one the other day. I had to do a little research on this. I've never heard this before. Uh, The claim is that Filipinos make up 4% of all nurses nationwide. 4% of all nurses are are Filipino, but 30% of nurses who died of COVID were Filipino. That's something. What's that about? 4% of nurses nationwide are Filipino, but 30% of nurses who died of COVID nationwide are Filipino. Huh. So the person who made this claim, well, let, let, quick little backup, background. This San Diego Union Tribune, our paper here, I don't know about your local paper, but our paper is on a quest to print the craziest editorials they can find written by the farthest left activist in town. And every day, it's a new one of these things. I got I read one the other day, and uh, it started off with, I am writing, this is the beginning, I'm writing this as a settler in Kumaye land, now known as San Diego, that's like the native tribe, now known as San Diego as a queer, indigenous, Asian-American refugee. <laughs> You're like, oh, geez, man. That's how we're supposed to start off everything. I'm not joking. Every diversity, inclusion, equity seminar, including our local school district here in San Diego, starts off with a land acknowledgement. You have to acknowledge, it's the new thing, you have to acknowledge that we are on indigenous land and then you go on and you state your identity. I am writing this as a settler on Kumaye land, now known as, that's how you're supposed to do that, right? So that's just one example. Um, let me quote this one here. This woman who made this claim. Um, yeah, let me just read this quick. Um, After a year, the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us many things about the state of the nation. One important lesson is that our proposed ethnic studies curriculum. Oh, oh, all right. Let me do a quick background of this. Sorry. Double sidebar. Uh, California just passed a couple days ago our ethnic studies curriculum, and it is appalling and atrocious, as you would imagine. It is horrific. And don't worry, it's coming to a state near you. It was sponsored by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and uh, it has a lot of power and money behind it. And it's horrific. Let me finish this point, and maybe in the next segment I can give you an example of how bad it is. Uh, so she's talking about the ethnic studies curriculum. Uh, one important aspect of any ethnic studies curriculum must encourage the critical thinking skills and sense of ethical responsibility necessary to address the disproportionate loss and destruction that black, indigenous, and people of color communities have endured. Blah, 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 blah. All right, whatever. And then she goes on and gives an example. 
gives an example. And the example is Philipp- nurses in America, 4% are Filipino, but 30% of all COVID-related deaths. Look at this inequity. Look at how Asian Americans are oppressed in America. Okay. So what's the real story here? That's how a progressive looks at it, right? Everything's got to be looked through the lens, the Marxist lens of oppressor. How does a conservative look at it? So I'm trying to think where to start. 1898, we'll start here. 1898, President McKinley, okay? We got to go away. Again, this is how conservatives think. 1898, President McKinley started a policy called benevolent assimilation in the Philippines. So we won the Spanish-American War, which no one ever studies. And then after that, there was something called the Philippine-American War, which no one's ever heard of. It was two years. So we won. And part of that was we sent over Western training for nurses, right? benevolent assimilation. So President McKinley says, hey, let's send over our um, training and trainers and doctors to go train Filipino nurses. Great. Fast forward a couple decades, there was a nursing shortage in America, particularly in California. So we turned to the Philippines because they spoke English really well and had a very similar training. So we could take a nurse from the Philippines and they could come to America and boom, work, no problem, fit right in. That's why we have a lot of Filipino nurses. Interesting story, right? That's way more interesting than, and way more accurate than, uh, oh, uh, racist oppressors. It's like, oh no, that's not it. Just there's this history. Now, that doesn't explain why they're dying at such a higher rate. Well, Filipino-trained nurses tend to work in the ICU and emergency rooms and nursing homes more so than other nurses, and that is riskier for COVID. Filipinos tend to live in multi-generational housing, so it can spread faster. More are going to get sick. Filipinos in America also have a higher rate of, dis- uh, of diabetes and heart disease, which is going to make getting COVID more deadly. And then another interesting theory, Filipinos culturally are less likely to question authority and speak up about any issues that they may have just part of the culture. And an issue may be we don't have enough protective equipment or something like that. And some Filipino nurses are immigrants and they feel like if they complain, they could be sent back and they don't want to rock the boat. So they go along with things that maybe other nurses wouldn't. That's how a conservative thinks. So again, a progressive looks, oh, we're being oppressed. A conservative says, oh no, well, here's the history and here's some differences and different choices and different realities and uh, different cultural markers that exist that create an inequity. None of this is due to oppression, just cultural differences. Very different ways of looking at the world. Unfortunately, the progressive way of looking at the world is the one that is winning right now. The thoughtful approach, not getting much air time, which is why I'm glad you're here. Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton. Spread the word. Hey, Team Buck, Mike Slater, San Diego, filling in for Buck Sexton today. Thanks for being here. Uh, We plan on being back tomorrow as well, so I hope you can tune in again. Um, On my local show, we talked a lot about this $40,000 a year prep school in Los Angeles. It's called Harvard Westlake. It's one of the nicest schools in L.A. And uh, they have a new anti-racist uh, curriculum there. It's absurd. It's, hor- it's, hor- it's horrible. <laughs> uh, it just teaches kids to hate America. I heard a great line. Someone said, the only thing that rivals the contempt that young Americans have for this country 
is their ignorance of it. Right? So they have a, a huge hatred and they're being taught to hate America. And the only thing that rivals that is how little they know about it. And just biblical literacy as well, right? Zero biblical literacy, which is what our country is based off of, right? There's so many foundational truths that this country is based off of uh, on that. And then not even just, you know, history in general. And then what came before us, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, the whole thing. People have no idea. And now anytime anyone dare teach maybe something like a biblical, biblical lessons or about ancient Greece, ancient Rome, oh, well, that's Western civilization. That's misogynistic. That's, uh, you know, white-centered and all this stuff. It's got to stop. We've got to cancel it. Isaac Newton was canceled at this school. They don't call it the uh, Newton's laws of physics anymore. They're called the fundamental laws because they, this is at Harvard-Westlake, because they want to uh, decenter whiteness. So if you call them Newton's laws, that's offensive or uh, uh, not inclusive enough of students of color, so they're called fundamentals. Like, that's insane. Newton's laws of physics do not center whiteness. They center the exact specific person who was able to define the laws of physics, Isaac Newton. But he's got to go. So you kick out Isaac Newton, you kick out all Western civilization, all Western great works of literature, kick out all the great Western civ thinkers, kick out all the great writers of Western civilization, and you replace it with Robin D'Angelo and Ibram X. Kendi. Now, here's the next level, and this is the ultimate level, obviously. When you remove God, what do you replace it with? In the California Ethnic Studies curriculum, they have in it, this is not a one-time thing, this is not just when you're learning about one thing on one day. They have regular chants to the Aztec gods. So when you remove God out of the equation, what do you think people are going to do? Of course, eventually, they're going to replace it with a bunch of pagan gods. And a little, listen, a little pagan worship never hurt anyone, right? Of course, except for the you know, 20,000 humans every year that were sacrificed at the altars to these gods by the Aztecs. <laughs> the Aztecs, they built a new temple. 80,000 people were sacrificed to the god in one day. 80,000 in one day. But yeah, it was the conquistadors who were uniquely evil. Columbus is a rapist. Winthrop, a bigot. Washington, a slave owner. Our kids are filled with ignorance and contempt. But we'll just have them pray to the Aztec gods. And that'll make things all better. Ignorance and contempt. And I know this is a little old, but I'm just reminded here of uh, the Meghan Markle. I, I didn't pay a, a lick. I didn't pay a lick of attention to the Meghan Markle. Like, I don't even. I didn't follow any of it. But my understanding is that she was whining and complaining about stuff. And the fact that this victimhood, which has been the theme of this hour, so deep seated in our culture, that a girl from Canoga Park, L.A., median income fifty thousand dollars, to grow up to become an actress at all, and then grow up to become a literal princess and still complain to the Queen of England and the Queen of America, Oprah, about how terrible her life is and how racist white people are. What is wrong with us? But this is what happens when you raise kids in this Marxist soup. It has to stop. We have to be done with it. MikeSlater.Locals.com. I never mentioned that the entire show, but that's our website. Uh, everything we talk about is thrown up there. MikeSlater.Locals.com. 
and uh, you can follow us there and, and bring our local show and our TV show. I didn't mention this either. Buck and I, we have TV shows together on the 1st, so you can watch us both together. Uh, I'm on at uh, 11 Eastern is, is my TV show. So you can listen, you can listen, you can watch me and Buck, you can listen to me and Buck. What an honor to be filling in for Buck today. Uh, we'll see if I'm back tomorrow, but it's an honor to have been here either way. Have a great rest of your day. Spread the word.